Hey, you ever listen to stock radio? Ever listen to stock radio on Weeb? Welcome to Fox Stock Radio. I am your show's host, Eric Butts. Welcome in my co-host, KD, Nick, and Sweeney, who's on his way. Be here in a couple of minutes. What's going on, boys? I'm much. Glad to have you guys. Everyone called some good football yesterday. Of course, dude. Nothing like the first Sunday of football. I don't know what's better for me. The first Sunday of football or opening day of March Madness. Our team took a hard loss. So. You say our team, don't talk. Oh, oh, he's yeah. a Giants fan too? Kenny's a Giants fan? Yeah. Oh, sorry, guys. As an Eagles fan, it's good to be 1-0 and in the division. So, sorry. Yeah, Wentz is looking real good. Yeah, yeah. Do it while it lasts. Yeah, I am. I'm not, I'm not hoping for a Super Bowl. I'm not like the rest of Philly going, this is our year now. We're 1-0. We're going to the Super Bowl. But it was nice to say. All right, we got a wild, awesome Canadian pot stock show tonight. So we've got what I think of as both ends of the spectrum in Canadian cannabis. We've got a guy starting the show off named Chuck Rafici. And if you know anything about pot in Canada, you've heard his name. You know who he is. He's known of as the Willy Wonka of weed in Canada because he took a old Hershey factory, turned it into a pot growing facility uh, through a company called Tweed. And became the first company to go public in Canada. So we've got starting the show with the guy who's the initial company to go public. And then we're finishing the show with a guy named Mike Gorenstein from the Cronus Groups. Uh, from the Cronus Group. And when you look into Mike and the Cronus Group, they're an up-and-coming company who came from the United he came from the United States to Canada because he realized that was where you could actually grow and understand the industry. And now he talked them into becoming the CEO of the Kronos Group. So it went from being a board member to talking them into letting him be the CEO and running the show. And we're going to talk to Mike Gorenstein and get a, a different perspective. Two guys doing unique things in cannabis in Canada in a different way, but two people that I think you'll really respect. Awesome. Yeah, I can't wait to hear from them. Yeah, so it should be two good guests, but before we get to that, let's get a little business out of the way. I want to remind everyone about our sponsor, Magical Butter. And if you don't know what the Magical Butter machine is, go to MagicalButter.com. Check out the Magical Butter 2.0 machine. This is how you can make everything from your flower that you need. You can make oils, you can make tinctures, uh, and it's an all-in-one process. All you do is drop in your dry product, whatever you want to flour in, and your oil, coconut oil, whatever oil you want to mix it with. And you literally just hit the button that says oil. And then two hours later, it's done. You strain it out and you've got your oil. You can do the same thing with butter. You can even make tinctures. So you want to make Rick Simpson oil? You can make it in Magical Butter 2.0. So if you don't know what it is and you're into baking or cooking, 
with flour, you need to check out MagicalButter.com. I can say this because I've been using it before they were my sponsor for a year and a half. I used their product and always thought from the first time I used it, there was no other way to do it. So check them out, MagicalButter.com, and don't forget to use the promo code POTSTOCK and you'll get 30 bucks off your order. And also, too, your warranty will be valid because people will try and save a couple of bucks getting it on Amazon or eBay because you can find it for a couple of bucks cheaper. Not cheaper than when you get the 30 bucks off, but they'll get it a couple of bucks cheaper and not realize that they lost their warranty because it says right on the box when they deliver it, if you bought it on eBay or Amazon, your warranty's not valid. So buy it on MagicalButter.com. Use the promo code POTSTOCK and get it for the same price. Also, And that's without a space, though, right? POTS. Pot stock, stock, I believe, is one word. You are correct. Good call, dude. Pot stock, one word. And I also want to remind everyone, follow us on social media, on Twitter. It's at Pot Stock Radio. Uh, We are bigger, more of a following and more active on Twitter than we've been on Facebook. We're trying to become more active on Facebook. It's just not where the show was born. It was born on Twitter and is now kind of, you know, getting into Facebook a little bit. So help us out, listeners. We've got 3,500 people that are in our group because idiot me didn't realize a page was better to do than a group. So you'll find us on Facebook, but really don't join the group Potstock Radio. Like the page Potstock Radio NJ, and we're trying to move all of our lazy stoners from the group over to the page, but it's not as easy as I thought it would be, although it might be. I'm I'm hoping a magical butter machine, giving away one of these magical butter machines can do it. So we've got a couple machines to give away, figuring out how to do it. One of the ways might be people who like the page Potstock Radio NJ and follow us on Twitter. So do that. Be a part of the show, and uh, we appreciate the hell out of Everyone who listens and all the support we get, even through email, I get tons just like this. I got questions for Chuck Rafici, questions for Mike Gorenstein, people who want to know and are happy that we're the source of the information that they're looking for. So I am proud to be a part of it. Happy tonight to be talking to him. And let's not wait anymore. Let's go to Chuck Rafici, the Willy Wonka of weed, someone I've been following for years. Happy to have you back on Potstock Radio, Chuck. Great to be back. Man, happy to have you back. It was a little bit of a bump in the in the road where we had you scheduled. I appreciated you saying, look, I'm not going to be able to do this for very valid reasons tonight, but let's reschedule for what I think is a better time because the summer, nobody's really paying attention to the pot stocks, the OTC, uh, at least in our world and in, in the American markets. No one pays much attention to the OTC in the summer. Fall comes, everybody's back on board, so probably a better time for us to talk to you. So everything happens for a reason. So start, for Chuck. sure. I mean, people – no, go ahead. No, I was just going to say start by telling people who are hearing about you for the first time how a kid who didn't really even smoke weed ended up becoming the Willy Wonka of weed in the country of Canada. Yeah, well, you know, like anything, it's it's all about timing and opportunity. And for me, it really started actually with, with California in 2010 when, you know, I saw what was happening. They they almost legalized at the state level. It it just, you know, missed by a few percentages at that time and woke me up to the fact that this, you know, what we're seeing today was coming. And, I, you know, I, I vowed that I, I would not miss that opportunity in Canada. So I started dedicating a little bit of time researching what was happening 
up here and it put me in a position where when Health Canada in late 2012 started drafting the, the regulations that became, you know, the industry today of this kind of large scale federally legal cannabis production that uh, I was there, you know, on the ground floor uh, reading, reading that regulations, you know, within an hour of it being published and, you know, got a head start. And, you know, a lot of people uh, obviously, you know, believe in, in the future of this industry. And so, you know, as someone who didn't have a lot of direct domain expertise, I mean, I was a, an entrepreneur. I had some, you know, I was a, an accountant. Uh, I had raised some money in the past, but uh, sure. I wasn't, uh, you know, I wasn't, a, wasn't a grower. I wasn't somebody from from the industry, but I knew I had a head start, and so I just made sure that I dove head first into it to make sure I could leverage that that lead up here to to try to build something big. But also, what was your position? You were treasurer of. Uh... Of the, of the yeah, party, the federal liberal party. Yeah. So at the at the time that uh, these regulations came out, I was the uh, the volunteer treasurer of the federal liberal party. At the time, they were uh, kind of in third place. You know, we have uh, obviously uh, more than two parties up here. Um, and uh, good idea. So they were. I was really pleased. Yeah, I was really pleased to see that party adopt. Um, you know, they eventually adopted the platform to legalize cannabis if and when they got to power. And so it, um, you know, it gave me uh, certainly a view as to how real that was. I think even until very recently, a lot of investors and, and kind of community at large was wondering if they would actually, you know, that the, you know, Justin Trudeau is, uh, is prime minister, whether they'd actually go through with it. And, you know, obviously there's a lot of, you know, when you're in government, there's a lot more issues than just the cannabis file. But, um, you know, it gave me a good glimpse that this was a very real thing. And I, and I knew that, uh, you know, governments eventually change. And it helped that when I started getting into this business, both our opposition parties wanted to legalize or decriminalize. So it's um, you know, certainly a different atmosphere up here than south of the border. And now tell us something about you, Chuck, that we wouldn't know by following you on LinkedIn. Something like obscure. Maybe you were an athlete in high school. You won the math title in Canada. Tell us something about you that we just would never know by like following you on social networks. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm drawing, uh, I'm drawing a blind. So I'm going to go for a really obscure one out here. Is, uh, I, like it. Uh, I, I figure I figure skated in my youth. And, uh, I so I could do it. I could do an axle when I when I stop five to ten years old. So this is going was, going way back. And and I can tell you, I, I am in no shape to do it today. I was going to ask you when the last time you put the skates on, and what would happen if you tried to pirouette today? You would probably be yeah. No, it, it wouldn't be. It, it wouldn't be pretty. I mean, it wouldn't surprise people. I, I my parents put me into that so I could become a better skater for hockey. And, right. Uh, I still still play some hockey. So it was all about the hockey. So that's what I'm going to say. There you I'm go. Stick but, with that. It's like the football players who do ballet to become better football players. A ice skater, a hockey player who can figure skate is going to be a better hockey player. So I like it. Yeah. All right. So now, and, and we're talking again to Chuck Rafici. He's CEO of Cannabis Wheaton, uh, Nesta Holdings. Tell us, Chuck, uh, give us a little bit of, of a background on you and your positions with both companies. Yes, I mean they're they're very much related. When I when I left Tweed uh, a few years back, I started looking at the cannabis space uh, and and trying to see where the opportunities were. And so I created a company called Nesta, which is uh, really a a holding company, a place to kind of incubate ideas. Brought on in some partners, brought on in some investment, 
And uh, we started, uh, you know, we, we acquired a company called, uh, and, and built some companies that we thought were really, just really focused, anything that was focused on kind of uh, had a very heavy branding element that was consumer focused. And that, you know, I thought had the opportunity, you know, and this is aspirational, but had the opportunity to become a billion dollar company. And, and I say that because there's a lot of opportunity in this space. And when you're an entrepreneur, uh, you know, with uh, you know, trying to figure out what, what to get involved with. There's a lot of things you could do. And so that, that really helps to filter out a lot of things when they have to have the opportunity to become very large. So the first thing we did was we acquired a company called WikiLeaf. Uh, they're based in Seattle. Uh, where we took a, kind of a majority position there. And that's really uh, very much a price exploration tool for, for cannabis. Uh, you know, obviously indirect competitors with Weed Maps and Leafly yeah. and the dominant players. And so, People can get WikiLeaf on iOS or Android and, you know, check it out, and they're, they're doing really well. And then we ended up creating something called Feather, which was a, a disposable cannabis oil uh, e-cigarette, a vape pen. And so that's about to launch in, in Colorado. And, and then we had some, you know, some other projects, a brand licensing, um, that we're trying to license some cannabis brands for the Canadian market. And so I was, uh, you know, I was running Nesta, looking at some, you know, just, just looking at some opportunities that might fit building out that team. And then the idea for cannabis streaming and you know break that down a little bit in, in a minute but the, the cannabis streaming came along yeah yeah and that opportunity and that's where you know i, I realized that it was just something that was uh really um really amazing i decided to you know to essentially uh have nesta make a, a significant investment in that uh and then get directly involved as you know as its chairman and ceo so so you know they're they're related in that uh, nesta is one of the largest shareholders of uh, of cannabis sweden and uh and it's really, you know, Cannabis Sweden, you know, in short, is a bet on a lack of supply, you know, in, in, a, in a heavy demand market. And, and I think if you look at any, any jurisdiction in the world, any state that's legalized, uh, in the short, medium term, there's always a lack of products. So that's really what we're trying to help solve with Cannabis Sweden. And explain to people, uh, you know, the name Cannabis Wheaton, what that comes from and what a streaming model is and why that is the right uh, model for Cannabis Wheaton to use as a, a cannabis streaming company. Yeah, so it, it's, you know, the, the name in itself, um, you know, was picked as a bit of an elevator pitch for the company. And so people might, there's a company called Silver Wheaton that's very famous in Canada. And, you know, because a lot of the capital that's raised for the Canadian cannabis market, you know, the, the Canadian institutional investors as well as retail investors will, will know of Silver Wheaton. And, uh, and it was the most successful mining streaming company, uh, or at least arguably one of the most successful in Canada. I think it's about an 8 or $10 billion company. And uh, the way, name Wheaton itself, uh, my wife, you know, I first, first heard the name, she thought, you know, what does Will Wheaton have to do with cannabis? But, um, you know, it's uh, the Wheaton River Valley is in the Yukon, and it's synonymous with the gold rush. So there's a bit of that, that gold rush aspect. And so, you know, people when people hear the name Wheaton in the in the financial industry, a lot of people will think streaming, and in and that's kind of where the really the the model ends. Uh, in the mining sector, people it's usually capital of the last resort. Where what streaming means is that it's you provide capital at a very good rate, but you then get a stream of product. And in mining, that means you get to buy the silver or whatever metal at a really low cost in exchange for that capital. So you help somebody get their mine built. But then you get a bunch of product cheap. With with cannabis, though, you know you're you're building facilities. You're not you're not stuck with a mine that's a fixed size. And so what, what we've really kind of taken this model, turned it on its side, and thought, 
what if we provided, you know, really, really uh, accretive, you know, kind of uh, good value capital to producers in Canada that are either already licensed or at the stage where if they build a facility, they will get a license and do that in exchange for that kind of that, that accretive capital, take a stream. And, and, and by that, we, you know, we, we basically take a percentage of the output of the facility and we get to buy it at a, at a fixed price, kind of at cost, at direct cost. And then we also take a bit of an equity piece from it as well. So it's kind of a hybrid investment model. Um, but then on top of that, they get our team for free. And that's really you know, been our focus of building out kind of a Canadian industry-leading team of experts in each kind of risk vertical, whether it's, you know, cultivation, construction, regulatory. And so, you know, be able to really attract some, some just all-star players in Canada that, you know, people that partner with us and get access to our capital also get access to the best team to make sure they actually become successful. And so and it's it a like, really interesting combination. And is it that some of your streaming partners need you more for your expertise and some of them just need the capital or are all of your streaming partners people who rely on you heavily throughout the entire seed to sale process? Yeah, so it's going to be a mix and it'll vary, you know, based on the part. So, you know, every, every, every partner is different and it'll vary on the partner, uh, on their current status as well as where they are. So, you know, it's on some, at one end of the spectrum, we have partners who are already public companies with a sales license, you know, putting product in the market. And for them, uh, it just the financials make make a ton of sense, and so it's more of a financial transaction. However, they you know, they also benefit with uh, you know essentially like a high quality advisory board, you know people that they can bounce ideas off. And if they if they run into issues, you know we can help de-risk some of that execution. And because even though if you're operating today, the industry is growing so fast. You know we have legalization, you know full nationwide federal legal legalization coming in in less than a year. And so people are taking, you know, 50, 100,000 square foot facilities and they're expanding to, you know, half a million or a million square feet. And, you know, any business that's growing by 10 or 20 X is going to face a lot of challenges. It's just not easy to do that, even with the most successful business. So why not, you know, why not have an extra layer of advisors that you can, you can, you know, rely on with that. So, so the capital comes with some nice go to the other end of the spectrum for us, you have somebody who doesn't have their license yet. They're at kind of the finish line from the Health Canada regulatory process where the regulator here has reviewed everything, says you're, you're good to go. Just go and build the facility you told us you're going to build, and then, you know, you're essentially going to get a license. And then for them, they're going to rely more on the team initially. You know, we're going to look at their construction plans, their, their cultivation plans, make sure the workflow works, make sure that they're actually going to, you know, be able to get and build what they think they're going to build for that kind of capital, uh, and help them avoid some of the early mistakes that everybody goes through in this industry. Uh, and so, so that's where the team becomes more valuable. And, and on on those earlier stage deals, we typically, you know, we get a better deal from it because there's um, there's a little more risk that we're that we're mitigating for those clients and a little more work on our part. So it kind of, you know, it really depends on the partner. But it's. Um, you know, for, for everybody, what they really benefit from is being part of a platform. Because once we have, you know, we're just starting to fund partners now. We've put out capital to our uh, AppCan, which is our first partner. Uh, and uh, we're, you know, obviously in active due diligence with, with many of our partners. But as those streams come online, we have then, you know, a lot of platform effects come in. We have the ability to, you know, manage demand between platforms. Somebody has too much product, somebody doesn't have enough. Um, where, you know, instead of having to just kind of go to the market to help fill those gaps, they have, uh, 
you know, a partner in, in cannabis sweet, and that can help uh, just, you know, help ease the, the growing pains of, uh, of scaling large-scale cultivation facilities. How many partnerships do you have? Yeah, so we have 15, uh, 15 uh, binding uh, interim agreements with partners today that uh, are various stages of diligence, and we're uh, currently also evaluating uh, additional partners. So we'll see where, where exactly we end up, but we have uh, partners currently today um, in, uh, signed up in six provinces across the country. And so we're really, and with a variety of cultivation methods. Um, so, you know, we really are trying to build a diversified platform so we can really, you know, really grow that diversity. And, you know, as, as the regulations unlock, you know, today, Canada, you can only produce uh, at the federal level, you can only produce flour and a limited quantity of a uh, limited set of oil products. But as vape pens come in the market, as eventually we'll have edibles, you know, your you, your grow and kind of that product mix is going to change over time. And so having a diverse set of cultivation methods, you know, indoor or not, you know, indoor uh, greenhouse, uh, as well as uh, different types of genetics uh, are going to be important to kind of balance um, those inputs, you know, as you make as you make a bunch of derived and marijuana infused products uh, for whatever the regulator allows us to make over the, the coming years. And Chuck, can you tell us of your 15 streaming partners, how many of them have their license to produce compared to how many of them have their sales license? Yeah, so currently today, and I'm going from memory here, it's uh, three have a sales license, and uh, we have uh, four with uh, with production licenses or cultivation licenses, as we say. So just, just, just under half of our partners are are currently licensed, and then the uh, the other half are uh, essentially at the either at the final stage where they're they're ready to build to get to that license, or at the, just at the very end of the regulatory process. And the nice thing with that is our because legalization is coming, and you know because our you know the government policymakers know that there will be a lack of supply. They've been really staffing up the licensing uh, process, and, and that's been accelerating. So we've seen. You know, a lot of our licensees, when we first launched, um, we had fewer licensees. We've had a couple of new cultivation licensees as well as people moving from cultivation to sales. So we're seeing good momentum in that progression. And obviously, as our partners move that licensing process, that, you know, creates more value for us because those streams are becoming, you know, closer to reality. Now, is there any intentions on moving towards America as that market opens up? Feds. I know the answer to this one, but go ahead, Chuck. Yeah, well, I mean, hey, I'd love, I'd love to, uh, I'd love to be in the American market. Uh, you know, so we're until it's federally legal, uh, we're not, we're not going to be there. But as soon as it is, you know, obviously, you know, this model works in energy, in energy geography. Canada's a huge opportunity today, and we have, you know, we have domain expertise in Canada. We have a lot of potential partners here, uh, as well as our current partners. So we're, we're going to be focused on Canada for now. But, uh, you know, there, there are obviously some potential deals in the medium long term internationally. And obviously we're all, you know, like I'm sure many of your listeners and yourselves just waiting for that day, uh, however long away it will be uh, when we'll see. You know you're not waiting. In, in the U.S. We know you're hoping it doesn't happen. We know you guys love it that up there you're like, we're the kings of cannabis. They're just, we're doing to cannabis what we did to stem cells. 
The rest of the world got way advanced on stem cells while we kept it illegal to work on stem cells through George Bush. So now we're so far behind. We're doing the same thing to cannabis. And we know you guys are snickering up there. <laughs> you guys up north are going, yeah, 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 we want you guys to make it legal. No, we don't. Well, no. <laughs> well, you know, it's certainly a, it, it is a gift until, you know, I know it's, it's just a matter of time. You can't, you know, the, the horse has left the stables. I mean, you know, no matter what the regime, I, I can't think it's going to be, you know, will it be four or five years? It, it's not going to be 20. I mean, I, I would, you know, some people, some people think it'll be more than 20 years before it's legal in the U.S. I, I think it's, it's much shorter than that, but it is, um, it is a benefit. I mean, we're, we're definitely, it's an advantage for us, but, at the same time, you know, it's just um, it, it, the U.S. is a great market, and um, you know, I would just love to uh, love to have it open up. I think it's just it's going to be so exciting because you got so many great products in the U.S. Now, the one thing the U.S. is selling at is that you're not stuck with the the heavy restrictions that we have here. You know, you have great R&D, and the, the amount of you know, I walk into a, a Denver dispensary or California, Washington State, and just seeing that all the products that are there. And, you know, people are market testing those products, right? You, you can see the great products today are, there's just some great innovation happening. And you're seeing a lot of keen companies going to the U.S. to try to bring those products to Canada. You know, why spend a couple of years reinventing the wheel? Um, so it's, it's just really exciting. And, um, you know, I commend, you know, the U.S. cannabis entrepreneurs. I mean, it's, you're just operating under a very different environment. That's uh, it's tough. So, you know, I just, I just look forward to the day where, people can um you know just go to sleep a little a little more comfortable at night yeah and and canada seems to be very against the uh edibles and extracts do you see that changing in the recreational market like i can't imagine that they go recreationally legal and do it only with flour and three percent oil it doesn't make sense any guesses no no i think on on yeah on the oil uh you know we had a we had a, a legalization task force that spent kind of most of last year kind of just traveling the country, talking to experts, average Canadians on what they wanted. And, and they came back saying they have to expand this. And, you know, in the black gray market in Canada, I mean, vape pens, I mean, the U.S. vape pens are a huge new segment. Uh, I think it's, uh, you know, I think it'll be one of the, the, the major product categories. So I, I think we'll actually see that be allowed Maybe not right out of the gates, but pretty soon thereafter. Unfortunately, edibles, uh, the government's come out in the draft regs and said no edibles day one. And I think, I think that's partly because of the additional food safety, you know, complexities yeah. around that and homogenization, right? Making sure that you got your THCs evenly spread out. It just adds extra, it's just, just extra steps. And it's more complicated production. But um, I, I think the real reason that the government doesn't want edibles day one is that all the uh, all the bad press, uh, I think at least that we see up here and that they've seen from Colorado, it has to do with edibles, right? And people getting, yeah. people greening out on, on too high a doses. So yeah. it's the one thing that we will have to see eventually because they want to stamp out the black market. And you're not going to get rid of the black market unless you allow producers to produce all the products that people are buying illegally, right? I mean, it's just not going to happen. So it's, I, I, think it's, you know, I, I think it's five years. As an American, I hate to say it, but Canada figures that shit out. Like the fact that we don't do anything through the mail because we can't figure that out. And Canada does it all through the mail and it's very trackable and makes sense. The fact that, you know, we just go gung ho and now it's totally legal and edibles are fine. I like your thought, Canada's thought process of, you know, extractions for liquids 
make that legal where edibles are what looks like it gets marketed to kids. So hold back on that. And that again or yet, damn it, you guys make sense. Yeah, you know, it's um, it's working for us right now. I mean, I think Canada tends to, you know, overregulate things. But, you know, for this, uh, yeah, it's probably the right way to go. And, you know, I think most people agree, you know, I think 80% of Americans agree it should be legalized and, and probably the same amount in Canada. Um, but as soon as you scratch the surface of that, you know, and ask Canadians, you know, how it should be legalized, then the payments tend to get really fractured. And so, you know, we're hundred percent, we're going to legalize this product in Canada, but when it comes to doing it, that's where they get a lot more cautious because, you know, the votes and, and people's opinions start changing dramatically when you start talking about making, you know, brownies app, you know, available and whatnot. So that, that cautious approach is going to make sure that it actually, you know, gets through. So I don't mind it. I mean, for, you know, when you think back 20, 30 years and people wishing, you know, it'd be legal. I mean, for me, it's, there's always going to be issues with these regulations that are out of the gates, but you know, you got to kind of step back and think, wow, you know, we're actually legalizing this and it's going to be, you know, fully legal to enjoy cannabis alongside other products um, where, you know, five years ago, that wasn't even a, a thought. So it's, you know, it, it, that's great. So everything else is just trying to push the edges. And Chuck, I've heard you say that there's 1.4 million growable square feet in Canada right now, and that needs to go up to at least 14 million. And I'm just wondering, is that a number that you've extracted from your knowledge, or is that even like the MMPR is saying that's what we need in the country? Yeah, so that number, I mean, it's a a few months old now. We've had some kind of larger announcements of expansion, but yeah, the 1.4 million square feet was the amount of licensed, fully licensed, you know, actively, you know, active, current licensed production capacity in Canada. And, you know, on the conservative side, we need 14 million square feet, so 10 times the production. Now, um, there, there are a lot of announced expansions, and, you know, those will come in over the next, you know, six months to a year and a half, which maybe bring it up to four or five million square feet. Um, but you're still, you know, three, you know, three X, uh, three to four X, uh, low on, on, on that capacity. And on the, on top of that, I think, I think 14 million square feet on the lower end and governments tend to underestimate the demand for this product. And, and a lot of it's underground that so they don't really know. And so, um, you know, it's just, uh, you know, we see every producer up here looking to grow as fast as possible, um, but they need to have a bit of a track record to do that, right? It's, um, you know, any, any, any cannabis grower tell you, I mean, it, it's called weed for a reason because it, it grows easily, but to grow well is actually quite difficult. And in the heavily regulated environment, you know, it, it's even harder to grow well. Um, so it's, um, you know, it takes, you gotta, you gotta ramp up to that. And so I think the, the industry is trying to grow as fast as possible, but there's a real, um, a real tsunami of, of demand that's coming with legalization. So, you know, I, I predict we're going to see empty store shelves um, here, just like everywhere else. The day it's legalized, um, product will sell out fast. I think that's great. And then, you know, the industry will get even more capital thrown at it, and people will, will grow even more. And um, you know, maybe in a couple of years, we'll eventually. I think it's more like four, three, four, five years. We'll kind of catch up, and that's where the better operators will, you know, will survive. And and you'll get the kind of the balancing of the industry, as you see in in some markets like. Uh, you know, in the U.S., where the price per pound is kind of leveled, and you see you see the kind of the good operators starting to to come through. 
And you don't see that that race to the bottom happening in Canada the way it is in the United States, correct? Because of the limited number of producers and the high demand where Colorado's seeing everyone dropping their prices, you don't see that happening or you don't predict that happening in Canada, at least the way it is here? No, I mean, I, no, I, I mean, I predict it will happen over time, but you know, the, the Colorado has been seeing, um, you know, the licenses were easier to get. And, you know, if you look at Canada's market or, you know, population wise, we're about, uh, you know, five or six times the size of Colorado. And today we only have, you know, 50 licensees. And of that, you know, a year ago we, we had about 30. So there's only really, you know, if you, if you, if you kind of scale that back to Colorado, you know, you think of the Colorado market and imagine, you know, you only had, you know, two or three companies and maybe you had four or five new ones. Think of how, you know, how dominant those companies would be um, and how, how fast they'd be expanding. And so there's, there's, um, you know, uh, that combined with you know, full federal legality uh, just creates a very uh, interesting recipe for, you know, for, for demand and growth. And so, yeah, it's, um, you know, today, another way, the, the medical market today is, is about, you know, one twentieth of what we forecast the full adult rec market to be. And um, producers are barely keeping up with the, with the medical market today. Yeah. So as that expands and the recreational market opens up, how do you, and I know this is just a guess, you don't know the answer, so you're just envisioning how you see the distribution channels happening. As it's, cause as I understand it, province is going to determine that. So that just sounds like a clusterfuck to a guy sitting down here in America. Yeah, you know, it's um, it is it is going to be uh, you know it's going it's to be a lot of different sets of rules. But you know, at least from a production standpoint, you have a federal system, right? Where you know I meet with producers in the U.S. who are setting up facilities in each state, and that's even more complicated because you need different sets of rules for for production. Well, at least in Canada, you're going to have one set of rules federally for production. But then distribution and retail are going to vary by province. And so, uh, you know, the, the best guess is that it's going to closely mirror how our different provinces do alcohol. We have some monopoly government controlled alcohol in some provinces. We have for profit or a mix. And yeah. actually just uh, just to, just earlier, uh, just last week, uh, our largest province, Ontario, uh, where, where I live here, and uh, has announced that they intend to uh, duplicate their alcohol based system and have a cannabis control board and have a monopoly of government controlled retail operations and a government website to order your cannabis. So they essentially want to lock that down and uh, where producers, if you want to sell to somebody in the province of Ontario, you're going to be wholesaling it to the provincial distributor and that distributor is going to put it into province owned company. So that's one end of the spectrum, but we have other provinces that are a little more entrepreneurial and, you know, I think uh, it wouldn't surprise people that, you know, being from industry, um, you know, I certainly don't like the government monopoly. I think there, you know, there's some inefficiencies there, unionized workforce, and, and uh, you know, we see, and you know, we live with it on the alcohol side today here living, living in Ontario. But I think what, it, you know, I think the mistake um, for them is that they could, they could charge a higher tax on the product if they let private enterprise do it. They, they let people open up regulated dispensaries. I think they would operate more efficiently and the government could put a higher, you know, a higher tax on that product and also make more money. But, you know, and then hire, and so, and then just we'll hire regulators 
to charge the producers to make even more money instead of trying to regulate that themselves. Let other people do it and then yeah. just charge them. Yeah, I like that. Well, exactly. Why, why, why build out? You know, they, have to, they have to put the money out to build out. You know, they, they want to build out 40 storefronts initially uh, and maybe 100 a, a or so by 2020. I mean, definitely not enough stores. We have about 800, I think, liquor stores in, in the province, and they're only thinking they're going to do about 100 in, you know, within three years. So I think most people realize that they're – definitely uh they're definitely you know they have too low a number in that in that volume so um you know we'll see what happens but they're starting off with that and that's fine people expected that but we're going to see other provinces come out with their rules so over the next 12 months um the distribution and retail regime is going to is going to come kind of come out of the woodwork from policymakers and various governments and that's really exciting because i think there's been a lot of uh you know i'm sure your listeners have invested in looking at you know canadian production companies but you know, a lot of the value is on is on the on the retail side, and so it's going to be interesting to see where uh, you know new players uh, on the retail side start emerging, and, and kind of which markets they're going to be able to go after in uh, in Canada. And I know I've met with some people in Colorado. I know some certain Colorado dispensaries are, are looking at the Canadian market to see if there's ways to you know some forays to, to kind of move up north. So I think you might that might be an area where you see some U.S. expertise be able to get a foot foothold in Canada once the rules get uh, clarified. And do you see any of the provinces allowing the way it is in the United States where they have dispensaries that you can go to, or even if it's done privately, it'll be through the liquor stores privately is best guess. Yeah, no, it's, um, I, I think we will see, you know, something that looks a lot like a Colorado or a U.S. style dispensary in some provinces. Um, the one thing our federal government said is they, they recommend not selling cannabis next to liquor on the same shelf because, you know, alcohol doesn't mix well with anything. Uh, no. So, you know, obviously it doesn't, doesn't mix well with cannabis. So even in Ontario, they're setting up new stores. So it'll be separate. So I think we're going to see, we will see dispensaries. The only question is, will they be government owned or will they be privately owned and then just taxed um, with tax revenue to the government? And so we're going to see a mix. Um and, uh, you know, I think one province to look at is uh, Alberta has uh, privatized liquor stores, uh, British Columbia, you know, the, certainly uh, the, um, you know, the, the most uh, kind of highest use, the most output as far as current cannabis production in Canada on the gray market uh, has a very um, kind of, uh, you know, very good for-profit uh, liquor model. And so I think we'll see some of those provinces have a very kind of pro-entrepreneur dispensary regime that will will evolve. All right. So a little bit about you, Chuck Rafici. How many boards are you on? I know, correct me if I'm wrong, you're no longer on the board of Aurora or Supreme, correct? Uh, correct. Yeah. When I, when I launched, uh, we launched Cannabis Sweden, uh, I resigned from the, uh, uh, the, the board, uh, the Aurora board, Supreme board, and then shortly thereafter the, the Cannel Royalty uh, board, uh, mainly not, not that not that cannabis weeding is competitive, but yeah, uh, could you know, be. certainly getting me closer to their business model. It could be down the road, exactly, and yeah. so it just made sense to step back and and really just focus my time on uh, on this endeavor. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. What the hell do you do with all your time? Because I can't imagine what happens when like three board seats of time open up. You can just go gung ho in Nesta and cannabis weeding, or are there other aspirations for Chuck Rafici? Sure. No, I mean, that's, that's really the focus is just, uh, 
uh, you know, there's just focusing my time. There's lots to do with Nevis Wheaton and, uh, and, and just kind of overseeing uh, uh, Nesta on the side. Uh, I am chairman of a company called National Access Cannabis. Uh, and just a chairman and investor there, so you know, uh, I guess a relatively a passive role. And National Access Cannabis is a, a chain of clinics that help people access the, you know, get their prescription for the federal system in Canada. But they, you know, they certainly hope to become a dispensary, you know, in provinces where legal. So that's uh, they just they just uh, started trading on the TSXB uh, under the NAC symbol uh, last week, and so that's um, yeah, that's interesting. So I, I certainly have a kind of an interest in the retail model. But uh, yeah, the you know my my time is uh, is almost uh, you know it, it, large majority of my time is on, on cannabis weed because it's really um, it's just a great opportunity to work kind of in and around the production environment and, and be able to work with so many different great teams that are building out their facilities um, and you know having been able to kind of recruit you know between my, my the president there Hugo Alves who was the top cannabis lawyer in the country and, and really built the the preeminent kind of cannabis legal and regulatory practice in the country. So be able to kind of have him join me and leave, leave his legal practice to do that. And, and, and some other members of this team, um, you know, it's just been really exciting. And so we're, we're just busy, um, you know, getting ready to deploy capital and, and looking at, uh, uh, at other, um, uh, you know, other potential partners to really do our part to, to really kind of blow up and, and, and grow the production capacity in Canada because it's uh you know, again, I think it's going to be anywhere to be short of product for for for, for many years, and uh, we're going to try to make sure that we're you know indirectly uh, helping grow as much as much legal cannabis as we can. Because I think I think every gram of legal cannabis sold in Canada or produced in Canada will be sold uh, for for many years time. So it's going to be uh, pretty exciting. All right, and now a few questions that I got through email from listeners, and I'm going to ask them to you because I got a couple of the same questions from different people. So one question a couple of people wanted to know is what can you tell us about outstanding debt and what will be coming due in the next 12 to 24 months with Cannabis Wheaton? Yeah, so Cannabis Wheaton, you know, we raised uh, just over $50 million dollars uh this summer uh 30 million of that was the uh through convertible debenture unit so uh, a form of debt but that debt uh you know typically uh, will convert uh you know it, it, my, my, so it's not um it's not really coming due uh it is a two-year two-year term uh but we don't really um you know other than that there at this point there is no other material debt uh going forward so we're and we, we brought capital in. Um, you know, we are looking at um, both, um, you know, other forms of capital, whether it's uh, project-specific debt or, or enterprise-level debt to, to layer on and kind of um, help multiply uh, kind of current current cash as well as any future cash we bring in to be able to put debt and equity into into funding some of our streams. Uh, but today, the uh, the balance sheet is pretty simple. And whenever here people – and whenever we- – people hear things like funding and projects, they automatically worry about share structure. So what can you tell us about how the company can grow without investors having to worry too much about dilution? Yes, I think, you know, fully diluted, um, and I'm, I'm going off, uh, you know, I'll just kind of preface this by, I, try, I don't know how the exact date of this, uh, of this number, but, you know, round about, um, you know, we have, uh, you know, about 300 and 
uh, 50 million shares fully diluted, and I'll put a big asterisk on that and go, go look up on CDAR the exact number. But, um, you know, we, we've raised capital with that. And, you know, going forward uh, to fund these deals, you know, I think when we look at debt, Canada, um, you know, the reason licensed producers have uh, at least the, other than the top tier players, have trouble accessing debt and, and or creative capitals that our, our, our banks here are not lending um, are not lending to licensed producers. And so as we, we've seen a couple of our big banks put in some line of credits um, on some producers. And so we're, you know, actively looking at that. And I think as, as debt starts coming into the industry, it, it, I think it makes a lot more sense for a lender to lend mighty Canada Sweden that has a portfolio production versus a single enterprise. Um, you know, the risk profile is very different. And so, you know, we, we, uh, I believe that we'll be able to access debt sooner than, sooner than our, you know, our individual enterprise peers. And that'll help, uh, help, help lever those dollars further. And 60% of the questions that came in wanted to know uh, what you could tell us about the financing deal that went south with Canaccord and eight capital. Sure. I mean, uh, you know, you know, at, at a high level, you know, I think there was certainly some some noise around that transaction uh, in the summer, and you know we 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 end up closing our 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 fifty million dollar round with Mackey, and you know we're really happy for their support, and we're kind of driving driving forward. But you know, obviously, you've gotten a lot of questions on it. I think the you know to kind of recap that at the end of the day, there was uh, you know eight capital um, uh, you know for internal reasons wanted to uh, to get out of that deal. You know, since then there's been a change of leadership at A Capital, and uh, so there was some, you know, uh, as we disclosed, you know, there were some some issues around some some of the individuals, employees at that firm had bought or owned a percentage of the Shell uh, company Knightswood that became Cannabis Sweden, and so you know for those reasons it was just um, you know it was just best for all parties to to move on, and certainly a difficult. Um, you know, it was a difficult summer, and you never want to. When you're so close to closing a large financing, uh, the last thing you want to do is have, uh, you know, have kind of those kind of events take place. But um, you know, at the same time, uh, I think we came out stronger forward, and uh, you know, it's, um, uh, you know, I think our business is very disruptive, uh, and, and for that reason, when you have something that's very kind of innovative and disruptive, you're going to have people that really like it and really hate it, and uh, you know, when those two things come together. You get a lot of uh, you get a lot of uh, excitement, a lot of uh, a lot of conversations, and a different different viewpoint. So, um, you know, I think we've uh, we've think, seen things settle down, and the team has really come together well. And you know, we're just we're just focused on executing on our plan, and um, you know, people will see uh, what comes as a result. Well, as a mortgage banker for 20 years, I know what it's like when like a $400,000 loan falls apart. So when a $50 million deal starts to go south, uh, you did pretty well for being able to hold it together and keep things moving in the right direction. So good stuff there. So what I want to do to uh, end our interview with Chuck Rafici, CEO of Cannabis Wheaton and Nesta Holdings, I'm going to list some Canadian companies, and you can either just give us thumbs up, thumbs down, any opinion you have on them, and I'm going to, uh, of course, skip over the first company on the list, which would be Canopy Growth, and just go right to number two, which would be Aurora Cannabis. Yeah, I lo- love their expansion. All right, so thumbs up. Thumbs up. Afria. 
uh, thumbs up. Uh, I don't really know them that well. I mean, I know them, but I, I've never been to their facility. Uh, so I'll call it a, a thumbs up on reputation. Thumbs up, but si- kind of sideways. Got it. <laughs> Supreme Pharma. Well, I, I'm a, I'm a large investor in Supreme, so <laughs> I'm a, I'm You're a large biased, shareholder. So uh, I love them. I'm, I'm a biased thumbs up. Yeah, yeah, they're great. All right. An admitted bias thumbs up. I like that. Organogram. Yeah, I mean, I'll, uh, hey, I, I, uh, I know some of the, the founder there, and, you know, I'll give it a thumbs down just because of the, uh, I've never invested in them, and I think there, there's other choices. Um, but, you know, I, I'll say that it's, uh, I have nothing against the company. I met some great people there, but they, you know, they've had some, they've had uh, some, some issues, and I think they're working through it. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's, um, I'm assuming there's no sideways options, so I'll go thumbs down. Yeah, you can go sideways if you want to on one. I'll give you uh, – we've got 10 here, so you can go sideways on two of them, and we'll let you slide. Okay, so ne- right. next, next is the guest following you, and that would be the Cronus Group. Yeah, well, <laughs> i got to give a thumbs up. I, I, I met uh, – uh, I got to meet uh, both uh, Mike and uh, some of the team there earlier this year, and, uh, yeah, I really liked their view in the industry, so, so a big thumbs up. Me too. And, and, and they're U.S. guys going into Canada. So I'm like, all right. And they seem to fit in well. They're not like – they're the guys I want representing the United States. Like I, I see Mike Gorenstein, and I'm like, that's who I want people to think we are in the U.S., not the idiots that go on vacation in Canada, the Mike Gorenstein. So, uh, all right, what about Emblem? Yeah, I'll go. I'll go sideways. I, I love them. Uh, they're they're very small, so they have uh, you know they got to go through that scaling uh, that scaling piece. But uh, they have a great team. All right, Ianthus Capital, another former guest. Yeah. I don't know enough about Ianthus. I, I gotta I gotta kind of uh, um, I, I know some of the some of the guys there, but I actually don't I, I don't really follow their properties or what they're up to. So I'm kind of uh, I'm kind of ignorant when it comes to Ianthus generally, and I'm sure I'll. The Iantis guys will be giving me a call to fill me in because I, I should hang out with Hadley. Up. Hang out with Hadley Ford one day. Seems like a cool guy. I think you and Hadley would get along. So a good guy to get to hang out with sometime. All right, th- that's the, that's the uh, thumbs up and thumbs down on the company. So now here's what I want to know to to end uh, our talk with Chuck Rafici. So I hear everybody in Canada is a fan of Chuck Rafici. Oh, what Chuck Rafici's doing? What they're doing over there? Who is Chuck Rafici a fan of in Canada? Like people, I've never been asked that. You know, uh, you know, I'm trying to think fast on my shoes here. Who, who I'm the biggest fan of? You know, I um, I really don't know. Uh, I, there's just so many great people in the industry. Um, you know, I would say, you know, I'll give a shout out just to the to, to the activists who have uh, have forced our government to move forward. And there's uh, there's a bunch of them, guys like uh, yeah, Mark Henry, Matt Myrna. Matt Myrna is another former guest. Love him. Yeah, yeah, guys, guys who have uh, you know faced, who stared down some some heavy jail time, prevailed, fought the government to the Supreme Court, and and because of them, we have the you know we have the regs that we're doing today. So yeah, yeah, those are the guys. Uh, I think they're 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 um, you got to you got to remember who paved the path. All right, well, good stuff. And you are listening to CEO of Cannabis Wheaton, Chuck Rafici. You can check him out on Twitter. He's at C Rafici, R I F I C I. 
Uh, also, their stock on the Canadian exchange, TSXV, is CBW on the OTC. They're KWFLF. Uh, also on Twitter at Cannabis Wheaton and CannabisWheaton.co because remember, they're from Canada. They don't need the M. So, Chuck, awesome having you on again. Appreciate you coming back after having to cancel, which I totally understood. And really a pleasure having you on as we get closer to the recreational market, which are you agreeing is July? Is that like set in stone or is that still in the works? Yeah, that's when it's coming. That's when it's coming. Okay. As we get closer to July, have to have you back on again. Great, for sure. Thanks for having me on. All right. No problem, Chuck. Have a good night. All right. Again, that was Chuck Rafici, CEO of Cannabis Wheaton. Really interesting past. If you get bored and you want to learn about someone who's just been in it for a while, uh, Chuck Rafici is a good guy to follow. And really cool that he had a political background, had nothing to do with cannabis, and the party he was the treasurer for just decided they were going to make the platform that they were running on legalization of cannabis. They're doing so, it right in Canada with the home delivery. I, I right. agree. Smart move. I agree. It seems like the only way to do it once you understand how much easier it is to track things when everything has to go through the mail, when it has to be accounted for before it leaves, and then – it's up to the U.S. mail now to account for it just getting to the delivery spot, and it's done. You need a lot more vapes, too, like you said. Yeah. Well, so that's the future. It, but but not in Canada right now. In Canada, the only vape cartridges you are allowed to produce can have a 3% THC maximum. So who would even not want worth it? Right. You need like a 70% CBD, then maybe it'll be worth it. I, you, know? Yeah, you know what? I should have asked him that, damn it. Oh, yeah. well, our next guest is also, although he's not from Canada, he runs a Canadian company. So we'll ask him if the CBD extract pens are also limited at, at their potency. But you know that that's the one problem in Canada is that they are flower only. And really, the only reason that oils are allowed is because a Canadian citizen took them to court and won in court, and the country was forced to allow extracts. And then the way they seems like they worked around it was make it a three percent maximum. No one's going to want them anyway. But Here's what's good about Canada. They don't want a black market. So they're going to allow for more if it washes away the black market. Yeah, definitely. And that's it's something edibles obviously represents is a huge part of that huge. market. You know, like it's people that use cannabis are making brownies. They're yes. making can of butter. They're using something like the magical butter machine and, and they're doing it themselves. If you're using it for medical purposes, then really, who wants to smoke their medicine? Like, exactly. what other medicine? I, I get it that it can still help you medically if you smoke it, but it's just crazy that recreational use is what's probably going to make edibles in Canada become a part of their process, which just doesn't make sense. But that's the only thing about Canada that doesn't make sense because really, they well, what do. What about cannabis does make sense? Um... <laughs> In Canada, a lot of it, like in Canada, it's your constitutional right to have access to cannabis for medicine. That's how it should be. That's a, it's a medical plan. Sure it is. No, I, uh, well, even though the Constitution was on hemp, nope. <laughs> it's illegal. So, so just crazy that it's entrenched in Canadians. Like it's a part of their constitution. I wish – forget federally legal. Make it a part of our constitution. Right to bear arms, but not the right 
to grow well, green. Our founding fathers did it, right? I know. Jefferson, Washington, all grew hemp in their own yard. I know. Crazy. Yep. So good, good talk with Chuck Rafici. So uh, as we've got Mike Gorenstein coming up next. So what's different about these guys is that uh, Chuck Rafici's company does the streaming uh, model where all they're doing is buying streams of an individual company's production. So they're not buying the whole company. They're buying this stream. And then for the next 10 years, they're going to get the stream of that revenue uh, back into the company, back to the investors, where what what uh, Mike Gorenstein companies, the Cronus Group did, was they just went, they were, he was a guy from the United States who just realized that cannabis was the wave of the future. But he realized that it was impossible to do and really build uh, something he could be confident with when it was federally illegal. So he had the balls to go to Canada. And, and I love people like that. Like, you know, cause I, I'm someone, right, there. right. I'm someone who said, uh, wait, this is the next rush. And in 2014, I said, there's going to be more millionaires from cannabis than anything since real estate. I didn't have the balls to move to Canada to go start a company, to become on a, to get on a board, to then become CEO, to do it. So I love people who come fr- go from the United States to another company, another country, to do what they couldn't do here, and that's what Mike did. So uh, I-, I think he'll definitely be an interesting person to talk to. Yeah, sure. So anything good going on in your guys' world? So now we've got uh, you know guys who live in the industry. So what is going on in the cannabis space that you guys live in every day? I just got approved for my medical cannabis card here in New Jersey oh, today. Shit. So I made my first legal purchase on the East Coast today. So um, I now have three co-hosts who are patients. Yep. One in NJ California NJ. and an NJ. Pretty cool. Now, awesome. in NJ, is it true that when you get your New Jersey card, that card works now in other states? Or so, Yeah, there are a few that do reciprocity, Las Vegas being one of them, okay. uh, one of the biggest. Maine and Massachusetts have also signed on to that, but it's still questionable if you can go into an actual dispensary there. Got um, it. And I think that's it for now. A okay. lot of other states haven't really made the move. Some are talking about it. Some even wrote it in the wall, but it's not applicable it's not like, like you're you not can gonna go just with walk in yeah a lot of them have a loophole where you can have a card from out of state but if you don't have that state id like the current state yeah it doesn't you can't use not it anyway yet. right exactly so, so great you got a jersey card but you don't have a massachusetts license or a, you know, the other state. yeah exactly so what was your first legal purchase i got a quarter of silver tip ah uh, montana silver tip, yeah I think that was a good purchase. What were your choices that you were like between? It was silver tip or well, Wapa. Yeah, I was looking at the Wapa, uh, which is across a skunk one and skunk two. Um, yeah. But I honestly saved all my like allotment because, you know, here in New Jersey, we can only have a maximum two of two ounces. ounces. And unfortunately, I only got an ounce and a half. Okay. So I'm saving it for we're having a drop this week at our sh- local shop um, for Cookie Wreck, which is cook- Girl Scout cookies and train wreck combination. Oh, shit to be like a 25 something percent wow so that should be so you, uh, you kept a half a side exactly get that limit and make sure i fill it up uh how proud were you like so of course not the first time you bought cannabis not even the first time you bought it legally, legally yeah so but I, you bought it legally in your state 
Yeah, it was a great feeling when I got the card in my hand. My girlfriend came and dropped it off today. Yeah. So it was just like to hold that and to have mouth cards side by side, California and the New Jersey. It was it's a great feeling. And buying it, I didn't I wasn't even phased. Yeah. Honestly. But getting was, the card was like, you gotta get out of jail free yeah, card. Exactly. Drive around and I got the state sanctioned paperwork that yep. got the rules on it. So if I get pulled over and be like, Here you go, Mr. Officer. Here's and now what do you have rules. to guys as guys who have uh their patient cards what do you have to be most careful about and this might help other people in new jersey who uh are getting or have their cards what do you have to be most careful about when uh, you're driving or definitely not driving and smoking yeah, at the same not. time well, i'm not at the same time of course <laughs> even i knew that's that yeah, that's, that's technically that's... illegal <laughs> but like how do you have to have it stored where do you have to have it and those labels you know that they uh that dispenser gives you. as long as it's in the packaging that yeah, comes from yeah, the dispensary put it in there I think the biggest conflict is everyone thinks that because they're patient that they're allowed to be able, that they're able to drive while being high and that's not true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Even if it's for medical purposes, you have to yeah. have it out of your system. You can still get a DUI for There's driving. There's no way to even really like test that, so it's kind of like your word versus the cops. Yeah, so exactly. yeah. It's a very gray area with that legality. Mm. But I mean, you know, what are you going to do? They couldn't pull us over and say you're intoxicated off of cannabis today illegally, so why could they do it tomorrow when it's you're just, illegal? You know, it's, it's just hard for them to prove being that. Being safe about it, you know. Yeah. Always use eye drops. And... Only five dispensaries in Jersey so far, but six one's about to open up soon. Where's the six one opening up? The caucus. The caucus. Okay. Yeah. So how many of them are in South Jersey compared to North? <laughs> Two in <laughs> South? Yeah. Well, I guess just, if you consider Belmar South, I mean, yeah, well, no, it's, it's the, like central. It's Come like on, right on the borderline. No, no, no. South <laughs> Jersey. Belmar, if it's not the right, one without right. the W, B E L M A R, they're up north. Yeah, definitely. When you got a W in there, dude, we're South Jersey. When you're that close <laughs> to Philly, you're South Jersey. I guess we could. So Belmar and Egg Harbor are still the only two in yep. Southern New Jersey. Yep. That is crazy. Now, are the patients growing? By a, a, a large number? Yes, it's believe like it or not, they're overflowing. 11, like they can't even handle the the amount right now. Like wow. the, our actual dispensary, which we go to, the one in Belmar, they just put a cap on how many people can come and sign up to be a new patient. So imagine getting your card wow. today, yeah, and then them telling you, okay, you have to wait a month to come in and get your medicine because we need to give you a consultation, we got to give you a you know an interview tour and break it down and then get you in the system. And because of the amount of cannabis being sold to the patients already in the program, it's starting to hit a point where because New Jersey is so bureaucratic, they don't want to expand the amount of businesses to create more competition and and product. It's getting to that point where, you know, it's going to overflow and we're going to have potentially no product. They're creating a larger black market is what they're going to end up doing. It's a shame because some patients really need the products like the vape pens, like the oils that they can't get their hands on. What other medicine do you get prescribed that you can get in a month? Yeah, it doesn't make sense. And there's no limit. Like, how many Percocets is your doctor going to limit you to? Uh, None. Like, they don't care. Like, if you're going to buy it, you're going to get it, you know? And if you have the money and your doctor doesn't really care. And God forbid, when you go get prescribed, uh, let's say, Xanax from your doctor, when the patient finds out he has to wait a month to get his prescription, how's he going to react there? Yeah. Cannabis is. Cannabis is the redheaded stepchild. All right, so now we are going to go to our second guest of the show, and it is Mike Gorenstein of the Kronos Group. Kronos Group, Mike, welcome to the show. How are you tonight, man? Great, thanks. How are you? Very good. Glad to have you on the show tonight. Glad to be on here. Thanks for the invitation. 
Oh, man, appreciate it. So first tell us, how does a guy from New York City, a, a UPenn graduate, by the way, you're talking to people who live right outside of Philly. So a UPenn graduate end up running a cannabis company in Canada. <laughs> yeah, sure. It's a quite an interesting story. Uh, yeah. I was actually on the investing side. So I was looking across the U.S. at uh, different investments. I, I think my thesis was something that most of the listeners here will agree with, and that's that uh, cannabis was going to be a massive industry, even without any real supply. We've seen a $200 billion global revenue business, and uh, I was hoping to find a way to get exposure. Uh, looking across the U.S., there were a lot of things that were difficult as an institutional investor for us to be able to do. It was, uh, it was difficult to be able to invest into cultivation because although it was state legal, it was not federally legal, so there was some real risk. Uh, we saw a lot of the businesses that time in early 2015 were certainly different than today, but uh, there's a lot of focus on solving uh, really what were short-term problems. So you'd be investing in a short-term solution and uh, a lot of time and, and energy focused on things like how do you make sure that you're not shut down? How do you figure out how to deal with the cash? How do you make sure your product's not leaving state lines? And so uh, as I kept looking, I, I came across Canada and what the regulations were here, and it, it seemed like a no-brainer not only to be able to move to Canada and, and build, uh, build up an IP portfolio and operate in Canada, but also to use it as a platform for, uh, for the global cannabis market and to start off in Canada but start spreading our wings and eventually, as the U.S. Uh, opened up from a federal legality perspective, move back down. So tell me how – and I already know this, but just explain how you went from an investor and a board seat to CEO of the company. Sure. So uh, you know, I, I had sort of uh, fell in love with the assets of, uh, of what was then Pharmacan, uh, specifically three core assets, Peace Naturals, In the Zone, and Whistler. But I didn't always agree with the, the strategy of investing as a public company in these assets without having any real uh, cash flows to keep things alive. I, you know, I didn't think that the full potential was really being used. And uh, when the, the company continued to slip, uh, you know, I had a fiduciary duty, but also I had brought other people in the in, into the investment with me. And you know, I just uh, had a plan and I uh, wanted to to turn things around, go in, operate myself, and uh, and run things the way that I would have wanted them to be run as an investor. You know, we spent a lot of time as investors, and we're always frustrated in the cannabis space because uh, there are a lot of head-scratching moments that some different management teams had. And, you know, I think uh, it's easy to criticize, but until you do it yourself, you don't know how, you know, how it actually is. And we decided we would go do it by ourselves. So, uh you know, we saw an opportunity. We knew a lot of uh, a lot of great guys we could we could build a team with, and just made the jump. It was it was obviously a tough decision and seemed crazy to a lot of people, but we really passionately believed, and uh, it's something I wanted to dedicate my life to. I was just saying before you were on the show, I, I respect the balls that you had to realize your dream but understand that your location wasn't the place to make your dream happen. So to move up north, when you're from New York, 
and move up north to Canada, that that's a ballsy move. So I, I respect the hell out of you just for going after it and not only going after it, but doing it and then convincing, uh, convincing everyone that you should be running the show. Now, was your legal background a huge help in kind of making all these leaps or was it really just faith and research that you did? Uh, yeah, I think the legal background certainly was helpful. You know, I started off my career doing a lot of M&A for, uh, for some large alcohol companies like Diageo and, uh, and, and big pharma companies. So I'd, I'd seen what the possibilities were. I understood uh, really from just watching and, and being involved in strategic planning how distribution networks and supply comes online, how to uh, develop the brands. And I was seeing at the infancy uh, that this hasn't really been done and no one had really gone far enough. So I didn't, in my head, it wasn't that big of a risk. And I know from a market perspective, when people would look at the company, there was a lot that needed to be done, but uh, legal analysis, financial analysis, and, and knowing that there were team members that, you know, if I took the leap and, you know, put all my capital in and, and left from you know, left West Village and moved to, to Stainer, Ontario. I, I think that uh, we'd have a lot of guys follow, and we ultimately did. And uh, so I wasn't doing it alone. I think sometimes, you know, I'm the person's name that other people see, but we had a lot of great guys move with us, uh, recruited more people in Canada, and really built a solid team that gave me the confidence to do it. How much of the management team changed with your becoming CEO? Well, the the entire management team changed at uh, at FarmCan slash Kronos, and uh, you know we did bring in a lot of new people, but there's still a lot of, of uh, different team members at Peace Naturals after the acquisition that stayed on, and sure. uh, same thing at In the Zone. Got it. And and with you prior to uh, your position with Kronos Groups. You were one of the uh, co-founder of Alphabet Ventures. What was that company, and did anything you did there really help you in your current position now? Uh, sure, yeah. So Alphabet Ventures was the venture arm of, uh, of Alphabet Partners. Alphabet Partners is about an $830 million uh, volatility-focused fund at its peak. Uh, but the founders and a few of the large investors in Alphabet Partners had pooled capital to go after different venture investments. And that was the non-traditional capital we were really were using for things like, uh, things like other cannabis investments uh, into Pharmacan, uh, into you know, a bunch of FinTech companies. Uh, it's the same group that was the first money into Kickstarter. And the experience there really managing some of these investments uh, along the way is extremely helpful. You sit with the founders, you strategize, you work with the ops teams, and uh, Pharmacan was one of the companies I was doing that with. I just uh, kind of fell in love and uh, decided to go all in there instead of be a, a diversified investor across the different uh, portfolio companies. And now something you said made me a fan, and it was that you became the CEO to transform an investment fund into an operating company. That's right. Uh, so – you know, it's very tough in this industry when you need to be extremely flexible. You need to be able to forecast you know, where the industry is going to be in five years, not where it is today. And I didn't feel 100% comfortable just sitting there passively. And I had a much different view about how things would develop than others. And so I wanted to be able to focus on building a few core assets 
And in order to do that, we needed uh, to have majority control. The only exception to that was Whistler, uh, because frankly, I think that what Whistler, Chris Pelt, and the team there uh, do is something that I don't feel that I'd be able to do as well. And, uh, you know, it's important for them to still have the skin in the game, operate the way that they're operating, and we're very pleased there. Uh, Peace Natural is in the zone that we thought was important to have control. Explain that, because uh, I, I don't really understand what you're saying there, the, the difference between Whistler and – which Whistler, you own 21.5%, Peace Naturals, and in the zone 100%. I didn't really understand what you were saying there about why it didn't matter with Whistler to only have 21.5%. So a lot of people uh, look at uh, – and a licensed producer is just capacity or how much square footage you have. You know, I, I don't think that's right. You know, you could – we're not REITs. We're not just real estate companies. Efficiency matters. Branding matters. Intellectual property matters. What Whistler does is very unique. They're, uh, I believe, still the only certified organic producer in Canada. They have uh, one of the best brands. They're a craft producer. They have, and it really runs through everything they do. The culture there, uh, the, you know, the people are from Whistler. They're locals. They really put everything they have into the product and focus a lot on quality and small batches. Makes sense. I'd say that, uh, that that's a pretty unique skill. And for me to come in, you know, I, I don't know the way that, that we run the operations. It, it would, it would work so well with guys that are used to, you know, taking a, a break to go skiing and coming back and, and checking on the grow room. It's, it's just a lot different. Yeah. The guy from New York is going to come in and tell everyone in Whistler how they have to do things. Probably wouldn't go over too well. So good <laughs> call there, Mike. All right. So of, of your, and now I know all of your uh, entities are like children, so I know you can't uh, in front of them say who are your favorites, but they're not here right now. So rank them of your uh, children, Peace Naturals, In the Zone, and Whistler. Where do they rank as your favorites and why? Sure. So I'm going to rank each one of them number one because I think they're all probably listening. So <laughs> right. <laughs> That's a tough one to do. But All right, good they're call. completely True. different. So Peace Naturals, you have a, a group of people that are very focused and passionate on the medical industry. And I think medical is significantly different than recreational. And we will always keep the two differentiated. So you go in, you find people, they have they have family members that are affected by opiates or, or different, you know, different unfortunate tragedies like cancer and if found that medicinal cannabis has been helpful for them. So it's a much different feel and approach there. And at, at In the Zone, it's, uh, the focus is on recreational cannabis. So the people are very passionate about, uh, about something that will bring people joy and make people you know, happy in their everyday life and, and make sure things from a quality assurance perspective are, are dialed in and, and focused on the craft of the different strains. So it, it's a much different company it's tough to compare the two and whistler we already talked about you know it's uh it's a small batch craft organic method it's uh so i think they're all different and and i like the analogy of children it's always going to be tough like a sophie's choice now so so now we can talk about the stepchildren they're the ones that you know you're not owner of but you invest in so abcan hydropothecary and then Evergreen and Canmark, just give us a little bit of a background of what those relationships are. Sure. So I think I'm, I'm the closest with Abcan out of them. We actually uh, divested, divested Canmark 
But, uh, you know, I think of the three, Abcan's the one that we had the closest relationship with. I uh, don't have uh, have any any level of communication with the others other than we, you know, we are in the same industry and we do hold small positions. But I think the core focus still is on uh, on Peace Naturals uh, in the zone in Whistler. And you don't got it. So these aren't companies that are possible children in the future. So it makes sense. Um, what is the biggest hurdle? So as you now have become the CEO, what is the biggest hurdle that you've been able to help the company get over with the team, of course? Yeah, sure. I think, uh, I think a lot of it is, it's very easy to sit back and, and believe that everybody's going to be a billionaire because you're in the cannabis industry. Yeah. And here's what I like to say, Mike, everybody goes, we're going to get into cannabis because when you grow it, nobody ever wonders what we're going to do with all this weed. We're just going to be able to sell it all. <laughs> you know, at first that's true. And I think for the next two or three years, that is, that is the case, but staying disciplined and, and not resting on your laurels is very, really, really important because in the future there will be price and margin compression. People will figure out how to grow. More growers will pop up. Existing growers will get bigger. And yep. what do you do when that happens? And, and so, the biggest hurdle is, is, was, I think, battling complacency. You can't just you know, sit here and, and expect that growing flour and selling it is going to work forever. Then you, you might as well be in the corn business. So what we do is, is every day we think about what are the threats, what can happen, you know, how, do we, how do we avoid becoming a commodity, uh, what is it that makes a strain unique, what is it that makes a product great, what do we need to focus on, not just what's the THC content, but what's the terpene profile? What's the entourage effect that when we produce a, a specific product, people like, people dislike, collecting that data and always getting better. On a global scale, uh, making sure that we're always cost competitive, making sure that we have new distribution channels. You know, I think uh, if you look five years from now, just growing in Canada and hoping that we could export to countries across the globe and still be competitive would be crazy. That does, I've never heard of another crop that that has worked for. So making sure that we're diversifying our, our supply lines, where we distribute is very, very important. And I think we've done a great job of navigating that, and we've got a team that's flexible enough. They're willing to pick up and move to Canada, and I think they're willing to pick up and move anywhere in the world that helps accomplish that. And I know you said you will always keep the medical business and the recreational business uh, separate. Explain why. Yeah, so I think fundamentally they're different, and, and teams or brands really only as good as the, the team, and, and consumers now can see sort of the genuine, uh, you know, the genuine values of a company. And I think that the values of a medicinal company – really more healthcare pharma model is significantly different than recreational, which is more of a, an alcohol type, uh, type culture. And uh, in the future, if you do see uh, any acquisitions, everyone always talks about when the big, you know, the big players come in, I can tell you from my M&A experience, I'd be very surprised for if an alcohol company acquires a medical marijuana company and if a pharma company acquires a recreational one, it just wouldn't fit. But also, the strategies, what you're developing. You know, on the medical side, we're, we're focusing on, on research, understanding 
how we develop formulations that will be able to get a drug identification number and let us uh, you know, have a product on the shelves in pharmacies that we don't have to go under a special access scheme. We have insurance coverage and we have clinical data that backs up every claim we make. And we can look doctors in the face and say, you may be, may be skeptical generally about the flower, but this formulation has proven data that can help your patients. And we accomplish that goal. And on the rec side, it's, uh, it's much different. I think it's, it's branding, it's marketing, being able to have different strains for different use occasions. You know, if you're going out with your friends, what's something that can keep you uplifted? Uh, what's something that can keep you energized? If it's the, the end of the night or it's um, a movie time, you want a heavier indica, something that's a little bit more putting you in couch lock. Uh, and it's, it's uh, I think, a different product development strategy that needs to be in place. And I know we're only uh, less than a year away from recreationally legal in Canada. What headway have you seen? Because it seemed like when it was first announced, nobody really understood much about how distribution was going to happen. And what updates do you have? Or you know, how do you at least envision it working come July of 2018? Uh, I think that that what you'll see is the majority of provinces in Canada will probably follow to some extent what Ontario just announced this past week, and that's a government-run crown corporation for distribution. Okay. Uh, actually, on July, I think it's likely a lot of provinces will still be mail order only. It'll take a lot of time to get these, uh, these distribution frameworks up and running. Uh, one thing I think will be a little different as part of our strategy with a uh, joint venture we launched called Indigenous Roots is opting out of that provincial regulation uh, within Indigenous communities and providing standalone private retail stores uh, like similar to U.S. dispensaries. But for the most part, on a macro level, I think you're going to see, uh, see government-run stores controlling distribution. A few provinces will probably be different. I think British Columbia is likely to uh, to have dispensaries. Uh, I think that there's a shot in Alberta that there'll be private-run uh, retail stores as well, but largely I'd, I'd expect uh, government-controlled distribution. And do you, uh, you know, is, is the goal of Kronos to be in all of the provinces, or is it kind of like uh, it would work in the United States where you would focus on individual states or provinces and then grow from there? No, I, th- I think we, we plan to be in, in every province. Uh, you know, it's different than the United States because you don't need a, a separate grow facility or license in each province. By virtue of being in Canada, a federally legal system, you can ship to any of the different, uh, different provinces. And I think if we were to spread our production into every single province, it would be really tough to stay efficient. I'd rather have a few centralized bases that we have set up in and peace in ITZ, and we've got plenty of land to keep building, than to have you know, ten different, uh, ten or fifteen different facilities. And when you talk about land to keep building, explain to people how the address is what's important in Canada, because that is amazing to me, and I think something that a lot of people overlook. Yeah. So uh, this is actually one of the things that uh, that I spotted that that drew me to uh, to the asset to the company initially, and that's. A license in Canada is tied to an address. It's 
not tied to patients. It's not tied to plants. It's not tied to production or weight. It's whatever your address is, you're allowed to build facilities on that address, as many facilities as you want, and produce. And when we were looking across space uh, back in 2015, what initially brought me to Pharmacan was I looked and I saw Peace Naturals, 94 and a half acres in the zone, 14 acres with 17 acres up for sale right next door. And it was, uh, it was a no-brainer. You could just go after a, a company that has an extra 10,000 square feet of existing facilities or one that has another 100 acres that you could build on. And, it, again, looking to the future, it made sense to get large properties that had flat land, on-site, free water, great access to power. It was uh, a real estate play. And you, know, you lose some efficiency every time you build a new facility. You have to hire at the top more QAs, you need facility managers, you need the different security. So there's a big synergy with having uh, having single sites. And that that's a great thing about the licensing here. And when you talk about Peace Naturals, which I it was 95 acres, in actuality, how much can be grown on 95 acres? <laughs> well, it's, uh, it could be quite a bit. So if you figure we... You know, we could put up 3 million square feet in, in facilities. Uh, depends whether it's indoor or in greenhouse. You, you get a much higher yield from an indoor facility than you do from a greenhouse. Sure. But uh, for the foreseeable future, uh, I think we could put up enough capacity for our needs over the next two years. And now is that, that yield, because I've always wondered about that, because I remember John uh, from Supreme coming on and telling me about their uh, greenhouse grow. And in my mind, I was just like, dude, it's Canada. Doesn't that limit the amount of the year that you can grow? Isn't that, I you, you can still grow year round to an extent. It's just okay. not as efficient. And, you know, I have nothing against greenhouses. I think uh, you can look at data from guys in the U.S. with greenhouses, and it's actually great. The, the key thing to look at is where is that greenhouse? If it's in Humboldt County, you got to remember, Ontario is quite different. Yeah. What you're basically doing with the greenhouse, fundamentally, is you're saying, I want to save costs because of lighting. right? I'm going to use the power of the sun. Sure. But in most places like Canada, you're going to need supplemental lighting, as well as blackout curtains. Sometimes the, you know, the light isn't intense enough. Sometimes it's too intense. And there's a concept called daily light integral. It's really the amount of supplemental light you need to be optimal. So that, that's the first part. And there's no question that you can save money on lighting in a greenhouse. Sure. The question that you should really ask in places like Canada, though, is, is that cost going to be offset by how much you need, how much power you need to heat, cool, and dehumidify under glass? And given the weather volatility in Canada, and we've run a lot of models to you know, check this out, it's... I don't know that the cost is there in Ontario. You know, over at ITZ, I think it makes sense. Maybe down in Leamington, uh, where Afria makes sense. But, you know, I think for the amount of control that you can have with indoor, the product quality, it's a really tough move in, in Ontario to pick a greenhouse. And we think it's actually more expensive in a sealed greenhouse to heat, cool, and dehumidify than it would be to, to grow indoors. And, and that doesn't mean I'm against greenhouses, though. I mean, we actually just launched uh, an operation in Israel where the climate is very favorable for greenhouses. And 
I know there it's a no-brainer to go greenhouse. Well, no, what you're saying makes sense because that was my question. Like a greenhouse in Arizona is different than a greenhouse in Canada or Alaska. So, but that, what you're saying makes perfect sense. So, now on yeah. the uh, on the oh no, go ahead. No, no, sorry, after you. I was just going to say on the oil side, is Kronos Group getting into extraction, and how do you see that changing? Because what I read is you can only do 3% THC extractions, and I don't know who would ever buy vape pens that were 3% THC. Sure. Uh, so Kronos is actually already in. We At Peace Naturals, we had the first oil license in, in Canada. So we, you know, we're certainly already in in the uh, in the production of oil, uh, but I think that it, it's it will change and become much more important as those restrictions are lifted. And you know, I do think that uh, it's it's a process of educating regulators and doctors. You know, the three percent concentration, whether that's THC or CBD, it's really a, a cannabinoid limit. What wow. can actually help you with dosing? The the important thing should be how many milligrams of THC or CBD are you taking per dose, oh, right? Yeah. So THC percentage is about a percentage of weight. It's uh, it's really not that accurate. And and further, and this is where it gets more difficult is, you know, there's it's not just THC and CBD that are important cannabinoids. There's no talk of CBGN. You know, there there's so I think it'll evolve. I think the concentration limits will be lifted. Uh, we actually are not allowed to to produce vape pens right now, uh, but I think that's all going to change. The focus in Canada is, uh, from a regulatory perspective, is making sure there's enough supply for rec and figuring out distribution. There's still a huge shortage, and so you know just providing access to any form is important right now for the government. Yeah, they're not worried about whether it's going to be extractions or flour. They're just going, we don't have enough product. And and really, that's just going to fuel the gray in the black market. And, and is that why the Canadian government may loosen, uh, loosen some strings on the extracts? I think that's a big part of it. Uh, but but uh, the other part, at least on the medical side, is it's really important. You know, it's, it's very difficult to go and sit down with a pharmacist or a doctor and say, here's your medicine. By the way, the only way to take it is by combusting it or diluting it with, uh, with an oil. Uh, it, it, there are many different ways of administering it. And until we're able to use those different delivery systems, I think it's very tough to compete with more traditional pharmaceuticals. So I think that uh, as time goes on, and I'd expect around July 2018, you'll start to see those uh, concentration limits, those forms start to be explored, start to be changed. But yeah, if you, I think you hit it on the head. If you want to compete with the black market, if you want patients that are satisfied, and if you want to have uh, you know true industry, there's a lot of different innovations in the cannabis industry. And uh, if, if you're going to be the first G7 country to to legalize recreational cannabis. I think that at least us, the way we look at it as a producer, and I think the way the industry should look at it is we have a responsibility to use our position to do R&D and to bring new products to market. I see it here in New Jersey because in New Jersey, uh, they can only produce flour and then they can make extracts, but it's very, and you guys might 
correct me here, it's very restrained how they can make the extract. So like, for instance, they can make uh, oil, but they can't sell it as oil for vape pens. They have to sell it as oil that you would put like on your skin as a topical oil. They literally put CO2 extract in a syringe and sell it to patients as a topical which is the same stuff you're getting in your vape pens, just less the terpenes. And then they sell a lotion alongside of that. And it's, it's it completely asinine. Yeah. So, but here in New Jersey, you know, there still is the black market that's not going to go away until the legal dispensaries can sell people things that are as good, if not better than what they can get on the black market. And I would suspect that with 3% THC limits, that's probably similar to what you guys are experiencing up there in Canada. Well, yes and no. There's still, you know, that three percent can be more powerful than you think because, again, it's there. there it's not just what is the percentage, right? If you fractionate and purify the THC, and then it's three percent of the weight, that's actually more effective than just your standard extracted ten percent or fifteen percent THC. But I think it's. I think what's big is what's the delivery system. If it's just a tincture. You know, that's, that's leaving a huge gap. Vape pens, uh, you know, patches, sprays, there's a lot of different, different uh, delivery systems that need to be permitted. And it's funny, you know, you see every jurisdiction seems to pick one different, uh, one different category yeah. and leave it out. Like yeah. New York, they hate the rest. No New, York, New York, only oils. Yeah. Well, but really, you're uh, from New uh, York, Mike. You're from New York. That makes sense. The pharma companies probably didn't fight it as much if they were only doing extractions that they could eventually figure out how to get involved in and flower. It had to have something to do with that. In New York, it had to do with law, would be my guess. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a tough one. I mean, I'm good friends with some of the guys that, that run the companies there with, uh, with, with Nick and, and Adam and you know, I think that, that that market's turning around. I think it's going to be a, a much better market uh, with chronic pain being added, and I think they did a, yeah. they did some great things allowing delivery. But uh, it's a it's still a young market, and it does need to mature. And uh, we're big advocates that uh, you know if you're going to allow cannabis, it's important to explore as many forms as possible because it should be up to the doctors to to decide what's best for the patients. Yeah, it really doesn't make sense all over the place because if it's medical, but you can only smoke it, that doesn't make sense. And if it's recreational, but you can only use it in certain ways, then that doesn't make sense. It's not recreation. So, Like anything else, if you're going to do it, why not do it right? Yep. Uh, well, it seems like Canada's eventually figuring it out. Here's what I want to know next, Mike. So I am a patent geek talking to a former attorney in the cannabis industry. Where is the intellectual property? Did you acquire any from the assets that you obtained through Cronus? Can you have you applied for any patents since uh, taking over Cronus groups? Uh. I think we did acquire uh, quite a bit of intellectual property. It still remains to be seen whether or not it's, it's protectable by patents, but uh, in Canada, it's very difficult to get new genetics. And one of the reasons the peace acquisition was important to us is because the first LP peace has, if not the largest, one of the largest genetic banks uh, in, in the industry early on, 
there was a period where the first eight LPs were allowed to collect genetics from the gray market, the MMAR, and then there was a deadline. And so what happened was all these guys that were applying for licenses and wanted to have their genetics, uh, they would ship the genetics to companies like Peace and say, please hold this or, you know, we'll get them back from you and we get our license. And then three years passed and didn't get the license and the genetics were there. So there's you know, 20,000 seeds in the seed bank. Uh, we've got you know, multiple, multiple different mothers and, and strains that, between Peace and ITZ. So there is a large amount of intellectual property there. But the important part and where I think you'll see patents are going to be on the formulations. You know, okay. We're still exploring different components of the entourage effect, but different genetics have, have different portfolios. You could call them of terpenes and cannabinoids. And being able to grow and extract those and understand, you know, how those work together synergistically and what the effects are is really how you, you create intellectual property so that if uh, on the medical side someone has PTSD, we're able to, to figure out what the best strain or the best uh, combination of strains would be to treat that. On the recreational side, if, you know, it doesn't have to be healing something if you want to laugh for four hours straight. We can figure that out in the lab as well. So I think yeah. that's where you're going to see the patents come in. At least that's, that's where we see it. Uh, on the delivery system, there's a lot of existing IP. Uh, one thing we're working on is uh, nano and micro emulsion technology to increase the speed of onset when you do ingest uh, one of the oils. You know, if you're taking an edible, uh, having the basically microscopic bubbles that will enter your bloodstream faster. So if you eat a cookie... It can be dangerous if it doesn't hit you for an hour or an hour and a half. Sure. So we want to we want to try and cut that down to about ten minutes, and that that IP is is available. It's just not specific to cannabis yet. So being able to plug a formulation into that delivery system is an example of where I think you'll see IP developed. You know what? That is huge because I just think of the inconvenience of eating a cookie now and it hitting you an hour later. But I hear what you're saying. Like for medical purposes, if you're ingesting something, that shouldn't take that long to go into your system. I didn't even realize that there was something in the works that could slow, that could speed that up to go from an hour to possibly ten minutes. So that's huge. Well, it's it's not just on the medical side. I mean, look, you're you're from New Jersey. I'm from New York. Uh, uh, we're not patient guys. Whether it's whether it's rec or medical, you know, you you want instant gratification, and I, I don't think. You know that someone should have to wait just because they don't have a script. So there's, other, there's also a risk to it. You know, if someone eats a cookie and nothing happens to them within 20 minutes and they hop in their car, you want to make sure that they have an idea of what's going to happen to them. You don't want them hopping in the car and then 20, 30 minutes later, suddenly they start getting getting a little uh, little lightheaded and maybe not in a good position to drive. So uh, there's there's a real importance to that, and I think that's actually one of the big risks of edibles, and we're trying to mitigate that and and have a safe product. Or worse than that, usually what happens is they eat a cookie, and then 20 minutes later, nothing happens, so they got to eat another cookie. They're like, this didn't work, so I'm going to eat another one, and then the next thing they know, they're sleeping for a day and a half. So not <laughs> it's, safe. It's a vicious cycle, hard. right? Or, or if you eat the cookie and it happens, then you get hungry and you eat another right. cookie. Another and, cookie. Uh, <laughs> Can't say I've you never always had end up eating multiple cookies. Yep. <laughs> so uh, another thing I read about that I thought was very interesting was Germany uh, becoming legal. 
and your company getting involved in the country of Germany. So tell me how Canada is selling weed to Germans. Sure. So uh, October of last year, we started started shipping to Germany. Uh, at, because Canada is, at the time is one of two federally legal jurisdictions, uh, is really Canada and the Netherlands, and there was no domestic supply, or there currently is no domestic supply in Germany, uh, the Germans had to look look elsewhere to be able to import product. And you know, we saw that, that Bedrican in the Netherlands had been exporting to Germany for a number of years already uh, under a special access scheme. And we read the tea leaves, went over there, explored a little bit, and figured out that this market was, at the time was about six months away from really opening up. So we started exporting. Uh, we, you know, we had to look at the German pharma regs. Uh, fortunately, our CFO used to be the CFO of Merck Canada, so he had quite a bit of experience with German pharma, and we started retrofitting and making sure that our our facility would be GMP certified uh, by the German regulators. So we started making shipments. We invited the regulators over. We went through a uh, rigorous two-day inspection, and we are certified by the Germans to you know, the, the GMP producer, same way you see Merck Canada certified. And, uh, you know, we're, we're supplying them medicine the same way that Merck or any other pharma company does. We ship it, it gets distributed in pharmacies. And in fact, it's, it's reimbursed by the German, uh, German health insurance, uh, just like any other pharmaceutical. Wow. And I think that's a big you know that that's that's how it should be. I think that you know, medical is very important, and in order for this to be treated like a true medicine, we do need health insurance coverage, and we yeah. need pharmaceuticals. Yeah, because until it's, it's really covered by insurance, it's not legitimate. Uh, you know, I I agree, and I think also it's important for for someone who is maybe unsure, or a little nervous, nervous, been through. Uh, generation of reefer madness to be able yeah. to go into a pharmacy and purchase the medicine the same way that they would purchase antibiotic or or opiates. You know, it, it's a much more clinical and safe experience for a lot of patients that are still you know still scared that you you don't see as patients because they might be embarrassed and it's a big step towards eroding that stigma and and providing you know real compassionate care. Agreed. Any other countries that you're looking at, knowing that now uh, you're actually distributing to Germany? Are there other any other countries that kind of fit that mold? Uh, we have you know, so we're public, so I have to be careful which ones I talk about. I could say we've already uh, started shipping product to the Cayman Islands. Uh, we we just entered into a joint venture for production in Israel, and we'll you know we'll use that as a, a base for exporting to. You know, to jurisdictions across the world, uh, but also within Israel. Uh, but I, I think you'll see the EU open up quite a bit uh, over the next six months to a year. I think Germany tends to be a policy leader. Uh, I'd expect Denmark, France, Italy, Portugal, Spain to all follow uh, very quickly. South America uh, has, has certainly opened up, and uh, you know I think that trend will continue. And uh, unfortunately, 
you know, I think most countries are going to going to go a little faster than the United States, but we've got a regulatory tailwind on a, on a global scale. And I think it's, it's heading to one direction. And now how complicated and expensive does it become when you're shipping from, you know, Canada to Germany, because I know to get it across state lines or, you know, province to province has its own issues. So how complicated is it to go to Germany? And does that make the cost difficult for, you know, the the Germans, for you guys to compete? Once you have it figured out and you understand the process and you can navigate the, you know, the customs and the shipping and insurance and, and testing, I don't know, per shipment, maybe $1,000. Uh, okay. It depends on the weight, but it's, it's not a, a big cost. Uh, on the other side of it, though, the the average price for a gram on a wholesale level is about $12 Canadian to a, just to a pharmacy, and then uh, the pharmacy is reselling that for about 24 Canadian, and wow. patients are purchasing it, uh, but it's not out of pocket. It's coming from the German government. And when you look at the, and when you look at that compared to Canada, it's significantly uh, more expensive in Germany than it is in Canada. And I don't expect that to change because producing in Germany is far more expensive than producing in Canada. So, you know, it, it actually does make sense as an export market. Uh, we took it a step further and started migrating some of that production to Israel, where it's probably a third of the cost to produce, maybe a fourth of the cost of what it is in Canada. And I think the advantage of us moving to Canada to, to establish our headquarters over, you know, being subject to the micro economies that you have in each state is you're able to spread like a, a normal, a normal traditional company and produce where it's maybe cheaper and sell where it's uh, the prices are higher. And, and it allows you to spread your costs and uh, you know, across the whole company and, and, just provide a much more competitive product to, to patients and consumers globally. And we are talking to Mike Gorenstein, CEO of the Cronus Group. And you can check him out, thecronusgroup.com. On Twitter, they're Cronus underscore group. And Mike, it sounds like you're, and I get why, you're proud of your management team. Because when I read about them, they have some good past. But you got these guys to most of them leave the United States and pack their bags and go to Canada with you. So give us a little background of the people you brought into the management team and why they were important. Sure. So the the first guy that we recruited, uh, Dave Sue, was very important. He started off at CRG Partners. It was a boutique turnaround uh, consulting firm. They were acquired by Deloitte. He was a, a roll-up-your-sleeves operator. So when a company was in distress or a company was inefficient, whether it was private equity that owned them or needed to be stabilized, they would drop in Dave with a kind of like an ops SWAT team, which is uh, – that's what he calls it. It sounds a little dorky. But these guys basically took over operations for six months to a year, turned things around, and then would pass it off to, to management. He was running uh, one of the Caterpillar facilities in China that was generating $500 million in revenue a year. I mean, these were very large operations. And for my alphabet days, uh, we knew him. We, he had, we'd worked with him on, on investment, and you know, we, we, liked his, uh, we liked his directness. He was extremely efficient. Uh, the guy's basically a robot. So he was the first recruit, and 
Uh, he, he joined us. He came up with me every week. He, you know, him and I were splitting, splitting a room out in uh, Wasaga Beach, which is right near Stainer. And uh, he really got to work on changing the metrics and moving away from, you know, some of the antiquated uh, metrics you see, like pounds per light, moving towards uh, annualized margin per square foot of flower benching, tracking really everything. Uh, we recruited Billy Hilson. He's actually already in Canada. He is the big pharma background. He's got a background in molecular genetics and, and biochemistry, CFO at, at Merck Canada, so we wanted to have that that uh, pharmaceutical background on our on our bench. Uh, Eric Klein, he heads up our sales and marketing. He started off at uh, actually he started off as a finance guy in New York as well, uh, but eventually was at Kraft, Chobani, and most recently Pepsi. He was uh, in charge of strategy and innovation for the water portfolio. Uh, it was kind of like the GM of Aquafina. And I thought if he was able to figure out how to sell water, uh, it shouldn't be too hard for him to learn how to sell cannabis. Right. Um, And, uh, no, I'm sure Pepsi wants him back. I think right after he left, they came out with that Kendall Jenner ad. So uh, we're happy we stole him away. We'll make sure we don't come out with anything too offensive. Um, Lotha Schultz, he's uh, got a Ph.D. in, uh, in plant toxicology and physiology. He's, uh, you know, he's not your traditional grower. Guys at the Gates Foundation uh, doing sustainable row crop farming in Africa. I know about as much of what that means as you do, but he really helps actually. us with the. <laughs> Sorry, you met him? No, a little bit actually, though. I'm just a big fan of Bill Gates. Oh, you do? So know? I mean, yeah, yeah. Just understand what they're doing right. in Africa. Yeah, there you go. So he he's very research focused, but he also had the big ag background. And it's important for us to find someone who is passionate, who would really take the time to to learn, do research, and and look forward a few years, and not just uh, make sure the plants are growing normally. So we do quite a bit of uh, of studies and uh, different research projects, manipulating the lighting spectrum using LEDs and HPSs, different light spectrums, varying the environment. So he was a, a huge addition for us in transitioning into what we think is kind of the the future. Uh, we believe that growing is a science, not an art. We always want to see a root cause analysis. We want data to back up any decision we do. And having a guy like that on board was key. Uh, I could really go on about the management team. I don't want to list uh, 10 people and then forget five. So I'll, maybe I'll cut it off there. Kind of like at the at the Grammys, you know, you see the lights going. All right, we'll we'll move on. You, that, and that was a really good uh, explanation. Your management team. So I, I want to know, as a management team from the United States now operating in Canada, uh, is that difficult at all? Like you guys aren't Canadian. You guys are American in Canada. Any slight there? Well, I actually happen to be a dual citizen. So my family grew up in Canada. I've got a Canadian birth certificate. Uh, so I like to think that I, I, I bridge the gap between the Canadians and Americans. Um, you know, we've still on the, on the rest of the team, I guess I should keep listing the Canadians just to make sure no one out there thinks we're, we're foreign invaders. We've got, I uh, Jeff Jacobson. Remind Sorry. you, out, about, and process 
You know, you, you haven't said that. You, you haven't used any of the Canadian words. If you have a Canadian birth certificate, when you say out, it's got to be out or, or you're not fitting in. So just, just make sure you alter your speech a little bit and you'll be remembered as the Canadian and not thought of as the American. Well, then I think I'll respond with the most Canadian thing I could think of, and that's sorry. <laughs> that is pretty da- there you go. That is pretty damn good. You can't just pull that out of your ass, Mike. That is a Canadian right there. Uh, no, we do right. have we, – we, if you look at the breakdown of the company, it's still mostly Canadians. I think, uh, you know, I think initially maybe the, the Americans are the ones that people see, but uh, one of the most important guys we have, Jeff Jacobson, he's the head of business development and really handles regulatory. He was the one who wrote the application for Peace Naturals, got us the, you know, got us the first license in Canada – he helped get get us into Germany, into you know the Caymans and Israel. So he's a, a key guy. Uh, the, the head of operations and facility manager at the Peace Naturals, Jeff Arthur's. He's got experience running uh, one of the Honda plants in Ontario. So we have a very very strong Canadian you know Canadian base uh, as well. I think uh, I think the story tends to be the the American guys coming in, but it's a it's a big team, and there's a lot of people that, that add a lot of value. All right, so now as Potstock Radio, because we only have a few minutes left before the stream is going to end, a couple of questions. Just give us a little bit of an understanding of debt structure. What debt is out there? Uh, what debt is becoming due in the next year to two years? I'm stealing sure. questions so, from the Chuck Rafici and asking you to. So. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, I guess we're going to be the debt-heavy ones. We just took out what I believe is the largest debt package in the industry. Uh, so we we took for at least we signed a commitment letter for forty million dollars in, in debt. Uh, the way that's structured, though, it's it's a much more flexible debt structure than you'd see. There's no conversions, there's no equity component, so it's straight debt. Uh, but we can draw that as we need it, similar to a revolver. So we haven't actually drawn uh, drawn anything against that debt. Exactly, and we'll we'll probably you know probably draw something like five million uh, later this month. But what we were looking to do is is really prevent dilution. We feel that we're very undervalued and are didn't like the idea of needing to build our facility by just raising a bunch of equity. So uh, we structured this in a flexible way where we want to prepay any or all of the, the debt at any time, we can do so just by paying a one-month interest penalty. And uh, we think that six months to a year, you'll see some of the large Canadian institutions start lending at uh, investment-grade rates. So that was uh, you know, a big factor for us in doing this. Uh, but it's a, it's a two-year term with a one-year option to extend. So if we didn't want to refinance or pay it back, uh, it would come due about three years from now. All right. And what is the goal and vision as CEO of Kronos for the next, let's say, uh, I know you can't look out past a couple of years, but knowing rec is coming up, what is the vision of Kronos over the next 24 months, those same two years? Oh, well, I hope I can look past two years or we're in trouble. (laughs) Well, it's hard uh, to just say what, yeah. I don't want you to try and predict yeah, what you'll what will happen in the future. You know, it is hard to predict. So we look at it as, a, as, as following a framework that helps keep us uh, keep us competitive. And there's really four areas that we we think of as this virtuous cycle at Kronos. So the first and the most obvious one is capacity. 
And you know, in order to do anything in this industry, whether you're on the R&D side, whether you're on the brand side, distribution, you really need capacity because there's no existing legal capacity or next to no existing legal capacity. So first and foremost step is, is establishing capacity. But then not just stopping there. We want to leverage that capacity to establish really strong and unique distribution channels. So that's what you see with Germany. That's what you see with indigenous roots, with the Caymans, with Israel. And you'll see us keep continuing to allocate our supplies strategically to open up those distribution channels. Uh, the third item is, is hard IP. And you know, we think that in order to prevent being a, a commodity supplier, there are a few, few areas of that where we need to develop. So that's continuing to breed and explore our genetic portfolio, making sure that we're identifying and able to formulate unique uh, formulated products and uh, and making sure to plug those in and, and whether it's a license or acquire different delivery systems, the vaporizers, patches, lozenges, tinctures. And then finally, uh, it, it's about uh, iconic brands and whether those brands are on the medical side or the recreational side, we always want to build brands that are, are value-based uh, and not just uh, something that we think is flashy and will will fade away within a few years. I think now consumers really look at a company's values and and traditionally if a brand doesn't stand for anything it'll fall. So once we, we get around that side of the of the cycle, we see us go right back through and start reinvesting back into capacity uh, but thinking about it a little differently. That's where we start going to international capacity like Israel or building much larger scale like the new expansion of peace, the three hundred and fifteen thousand square feet. Uh, going to distribution, opening up new channels, reinvesting in IP, and your distribution channel is stronger when you have capacity and branded products. Pepsi is strong, not because of Pepsi, but because if you go in any gas station, if you want to buy any product, you pretty much have to go to Pepsi because that's what they supply half of it. So it goes along the virtuous cycle and continues strengthening us. And regardless of where the margin compression hits us or where there's commodification, we protect ourselves by following those four key elements of the virtuous cycle. Mike Gorenstein, CEO of Cronus Group. Man, I like your vision. I've been following you, doing my research. I got to admit, I, I've never bought the stock. I don't plan on buying it in the near future, but I'll tell you, I'm a big fan. And I'm only saying that I don't buy any stock from the people I interview just because I don't want any conflicts of interest. But big fan of you and what you're doing. So I hope you're back on Pot Stock Radio as things progress as we get closer to July of 2018 in that recreational market. Thanks so much. Oh. Appreciate it. No problem. Awesome. And check them out on TSX, their MJN, on the OTC, their PRMCF, the com, and on Twitter, their Kronos underscore group. Mike, thanks again. Have a good night. Want to thank also Chuck Rafici. Uh, so great guest tonight. Both Mike and Chuck were awesome. I hope people who are paying attention to Canada are listening tonight because it is a legitimate market where people are growing and selling cannabis, and that's where the money is going to be made, at least in the near future. So, all right, and thank you very much to Nick, KD, Sweeney. Appreciate you guys being a part of Potstock Radio. And can't forget MagicalButter.com. Go to MagicalButter.com, use the promo code POTSTOCK, one word, and you will get $30 off your Magical Butter, too. And if you cook 
and you don't use Magical Butter, you're not doing it right. So check them out, MagicalButter.com. Don't forget, follow us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, uh, at Potstock Radio on Twitter and fe- on Facebook. Like the page Potstock Day. We will be back next month. Couple of good guests. Pay attention to Twitter. It's going to be some exciting people coming on for our October show. Have a good month. Talk to you then. All right, guys. Have a good green month. Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life. And that's how she wrote.